Hello and welcome to today's episode of Monarchism Unfiltered. I'm one of your hosts, Bronze. And I'm your second and for the first time today, last host, Bronze. Yes, sadly I am, due to personal life issues, can no longer be part of the usual cast or even may, uh, of the or might even not be part of any future episodes. Life has its ways of life has its ways of getting into stuff, I guess. And apparently, I am I am unable to speak today, I guess. It's very difficult, you know, with the speech and everything. Yeah, especially. Yeah. Still, on today's episode, we've decided to pick on the rather curious topic of nostalgism, with a particular focus on, uh, I guess, the golden standard, outer key, and, calling it here and phoning it in, colonialism. Oh, yeah. But really, the thing we're most nostalgic for is the time when there were three hosts. Um. <laughs> that got too real, too quick, Bronze. Come on now. Come on. We got, okay, okay. No, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta take it up a few levels. We can't go into the pit this soon. It's been. Yeah, it's it's uh, one minute twenty nine and already. Come on, where's that British step up for lift? Lip. Not yeah, lift. Yeah, we gotta, we gonna stiffen the lips. Yeah, so then, I mean, yeah, nostalgism is a big thing on the internet, especially in our, in our neck of the woods, you know. It's like, oh, we gotta go back. There's the thatched roofs and the gold standard and the autarky and the the stuff. Viciously you know. invading countries and oppressing that, their people. Yeah, that that was also that that yeah, is also part of it. Yeah, I mean, nostalgism has is a strong. I mean, okay, f first, before we actually start discussing the thing, we best define the thing, at least for the purposes of this episode. That makes sense, yeah. Well, uh, I'll go with my definition, then you tell me what you think. So, nostalgia, okay. nostalgism, for the, con for the context uh, of this episode, basically refers to the typically misinformed... Uh, ide idealized view of the past or of X element of the past without fully A, contextualizing it, B, understanding why it worked or didn't work, and C, the ever so slight fetishization of said past. You, I mean, again, for us, it's, it's uh, tragically the, our... God, I, can't, I, I was about to say Portuguese expression that, that doesn't work in any English-speaking environment. It's simply, uh, it's simply our bread and breakfast. That's, that also doesn't work. Fuck me. Uh, our bread and butter. Wow. That's the one! Our bread and God. breakfast. <laughs> Come on now. Come on, we're going to make up for the, for the banter gap, you know. We've got to... Yeah, by by my newfound inability to speak. The yeah, we, joy. we both have to become fifty percent more charismatic for this to work. Oh wow, way to way to dampen the mood. In any case, so nostalgia means it refers to this idealized view of the past, again, as said, couched upon a misunderstanding of said past, 
of what of what if if we're talking about a specific element of what made that element work and what made it stop working. It's this kind of decontextualization of the past that is often attached to nostalgism. Yeah, no, it's the, just like you know, it's like this broad yearning. That's the that's the word I'd use. Yearning, you know, uh, there's the past, yeah. and it's it you know things are bad now, and so there must have been a time when they were good, and uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, on a trivial sense, that is true. There must have been a there must bad time now. Therefore, I'd, good time must have existed prior or will eventually exist after. It's not to say that nostalgism is based upon complete fabrication and misunderstanding. It's just that uh, when it comes to its informing of policy is often lackluster. You see this... Um, you see this very clearly, and this, uh, and this, the, the our listeners that are somewhat outside of our neck of the woods might have also listened. Uh, the gold standard, for example, is often uh, is often touted as like bringing stability and growth to the financial system, somehow. Somehow, but it's not entirely clear how this would happen. And as far as I can tell, the bigger, the greatest argument for the gold standard was that it happened in the past. I mean, because it's not like, oh, we're going to rise up against the neoliberal elites, whatever, whatever conception we have of what that word means, and then, you know, they are now, and so the gold standard of yesterday must be the thing, even though, I mean, the gold standard would play perfectly. It is, if anything, an ur-neoliberal economic move yeah i mean to 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 boil it uh, down to the in the in the in the weird hypo hypothetical chance that you got to what episode 29 without reading none of the previous three episodes where bronze talk about economics the real short answer is this gold standard doesn't work because it's legit. It logistically doesn't work because there is a limit. There is a limited speed to how much, to how much uh, gold, I guess, you can extract from the earth, and that speed is what dictates the pace of economic growth. Period. No other economic factors. Well, some other now, economic factors, but it's it's essentially it's like placing a cap on it, which is like it's a really weird thing to tie the economy to. If you think about mm -hmm. it, that there's like, oh. There's a mineral in the earth, there's loads of those, but we pick this one because it's shiny and we've known about it for long. Therefore, let's tie human endeavor to it. Pretty much. Again, the major argument is that because gold has an intrinsic value, uh, which, I mean, let's not go into that, uh, into that bit today because I think we've already gone to it. If we haven't, well, someone will tell us and we'll do an episode on it. Well, to be fair, the Q&A is coming right up, so that will also be a place to clear, to clear this one out in case anyone's curious. Um, but suffice to say that the issue with the gold standard is that also it, it bas okay, to because the main argument, emotional one, not necessarily a sense-making, is that the gold standard will counter inflation. The main issue with this claim is that the current economic dynamic that we're living in uh, is so extremely uh, deflation, uh, deflationary. Is that how you say it? That is how you say it, yeah. 
so extremely deflationary that the need for a gold standard has become pointless. Essentially, to, to, to give a good example, the, we'll all remember when, when Trump issued his stimulus checks. The, during, the, during the height of the printing press, as it were, the value of the dollar went up rather than down. This is again. This is this has to do with a lot with a lot of weird well, not weird when you think about them. But this is to say that the current way the economy is structured globally is to towards an extreme deflationary pattern. This I, I would, has an. I would just like to 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 clarify that because that if you know you've taken economics one hundred and one and nothing else, that will seem like a, a very sort of strange situation. And so what the thing is, that happened was that the stimulus checks and the 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 Wall Street uh, Jerome Powell money printer go whatever that didn't really play into it but at the same time as that because there was this sort of global time of instability all of the world's country all of the world all of the world wanted to have dollars because you know Fiat currency is a hedge against uncertainty. And, and and what is the fiat currency in the modern world? It's the dollar. So, you know, like, do you want to hold whatever the local currency of, of of your country is when you could be holding dollars, which are seen as more, as, more certain? So, you know, so there was, a, you know, a concentrated buying of dollars from, from everyone all over the world. And, but it happened to coincide with this this thing that had to do with making credit swaps for banks to like putting a floor on assets, you know, and that didn't really play into it because that doesn't create any new spending, right? Because I think that uh, when Copernicus came up with the, you know, and I'm sorry we're going deep on off on a tangent now, but I feel like this needs explaining. When Copernicus came up with the quantity theory of money, which states that, you know, okay, the quantity of money in the economy determines the price, which is true in the macroeconomics uh, 101 sense, that, you know, if there's more money in the system, that, then there's more money in prices. But what... Copernicus couldn't account for because he lived in the 1400s is uh, a conception of what the economy is because the economy if you think about it in this way is the sum of all the decisions made in let's say the world or the country or whatever right but if you you know do a credit swap thereby increasing the amount of money but that new money doesn't lead to any new spending or buying then it doesn't inf like inf affect prices and so it doesn't create inflation is the thing that some people misunderstood when we talked about it in episode 18 which we got comments about Surprisingly, it's often the 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 episode the episode where our certified uh, I actually forgot where the person in the podcast with actual economic education 
uh, says shit that people often get ballistic about, funnily enough. Yeah, and it's it's very strange, you know, but you know, here's the thing, here's the thing, no, it's like, you know, it's it's not intuitive, you know, that there's more money, but that somehow doesn't lead to more spending, which is why we got comments about how once people are able to go out again and spend at some hypothetical date in the future, they will discover that they have more money, because clearly there has been created more money, but the truth is is that people having more money to spend is not the reality that we're looking at. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that is just a sad truth, and that just goes to show how the global economy is set, is structured in such a deflation... is structured in such a way that inflation effectively no longer exists, invalidating the sole already dubiously beneficial claim that the gold standard would end uh, inflation yeah and if if yeah because what what inflation is is the main point because you could suppose okay if the gold standard it will en end inflation but w where is the inflation because i don't really think that there exists inflation on a global sense in the world in any significant way what we have is a, a very small de jure inflation, which is a de, de facto deflation. And, yeah. and this, in, and if you want to, if you want to have this explained by someone who's way smarter than than either of us, then you should look up a certain Polish economist called Michal Kalecki. In fact, I, I might link his uh, nineteen forty three. Uh, paper the political consequences of full employment in the description it's very short there's no there's no calculus don't worry in which he explains that if you were to have uh, a political system such as Keynes explains where you know you use the fiscal tools to guarantee full employment that will create an inflation not because there's more money created by spending or some other such Friedmanite nonsense but rather because if you have more employment, that creates a demand-pull inflation. And so he explains how if such a system existed, and the inflation is a, most negatively affects those that already have assets, and asset holders have power in society, then asset holders will contrive a system which seeks to have as its guiding principles the limiting of inflations for the purpose of price stability, which is exactly what we did see happen in the 80s. And so it's very interesting to see Mihal Kalinsky predict this 40 years in advance. Indeed. So that's a paper that you should check out. Yeah, that I'm was, sure you we know, have. A, a quick rehashing of, you know, why gold standard is a bit of a nothing and why inflation doesn't work like you might think it does yeah especially especially under the current economic paradigm that's right but still i think that uh wow 15 minutes in and we've cut and, and we've utterly crushed gold bugs throughout the planet who knew yeah wow who knew i mean i'm not surprised to be honest like, i mean they're gold bugs yeah i mean 
Yeah, they're, they're, it's. I mean, this is an episode about nostalgism. It's lo- it's not like any of the three topics we're we're touching here are any amount of particularly stable. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's yeah. So like the important thing about the gold standard isn't any particularity of it, but you know, it's in it's thing as a phenomenon of like it was in the past and clearly. It, you know, because I think the gold standard thing comes out of an asset, like a, a truthful observation that, you know, things are kind of weird. And maybe they shouldn't be like this. Maybe this isn't how the world economy should work. Because it feels like it should make more sense than this. But the truth is, is that the gold standard is not a good solution. And if you have a good solution, you should... Uh, I'd say email us, but probably you should email... Like important people first, if you have, if you know how to figure it out. Those still do email us. Yeah, still email us. I want, I want to, I want to be in on it. You know, if you had a eureka moment mm-hmm, while listening mm-hmm. to this thing, I want, I want, I want, I want a co-citation in in your paper. Name drop us in the manifesto. We need the clout. Uh, <laughs> we need the clout. Of course. But yeah. Now yeah. what's. Uh, I, I'm, I'm setting up the transition. Oh, fair uh, enough. <laughs> yeah, so the, the thing about the gold standard is that if you think, of, it's a very mercantilist pol- policy. And mercantilism, for some reason, is the nostalgia jackpot. That is true. A lot of people are... are, are I mean, it, it does... It, like, it doesn't even make sense because any any like marginal research on like mercantilism specifically, I know a lot of people are, are are nostalgic for protectionism more so than mercantilism per se. But you still do find the mercantilism apolog- apologists, and the like. Did any of them read the actual social impacts of mercantilism? How how that kind of caused famines inside said yeah. countries. And led yeah, to widespread good. depopulation in some others. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not. It's not good with the mercantilism. But so you have the gold standard. You have autarky. You know, it's because you know if we're gonna have, if we need to accumulate the gold, then obviously you know we got we got to we got to grow our own shit. Apparently, and there is. A sort of argument you can make, although you don't see it commonly made on the interwebs, which is which is the climate change argument for autarky. The cl- the cl- there is a climate change variation. Hold up, hold up, hold up. Yeah, and and I mean, and it's it's and it sort of works, but not in any. But but the final product, if you follow it to its conclusion, doesn't look anything like autarky, because nationalism is cringe we'll get there so so the autarkic so the climate change argument for autarky is that if you import food and other stuff from all over the world right then you you have to ship it and usually if you ship stuff in quantities significant enough to you know feed nations then you 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 you're, you're transporting it with polluting means whether that be ships or rail or, or trucks and so, if we could consume products created closer to home, 
there would be less transportation and therefore less pollution. That is almost insultingly simplistic. It's ve it's, it gets more nuanced than this, but, but obviously there are several angles of critique. One, in a, you know, because in the traditional autarkic mode, the unit that you're looking at is very much the nation state or the, or the empire. It doesn't have to, the state, the highest, mm -hmm. the top level state, uh, you know, which, you know, these days often is a nation state, but there's no reason to make it the nation state, right? Because that's not an actual guarantor of locality. Because the nation could be huge. Or, you know, or it could have other nations close by. Right, so, because I, I think that, you know, it makes sense to, to have a, a drive, not like a an autarkical process, but a drive towards more locally produced, let's say, food, for one. But then again, there's no reason to limit it to food or or, or any specific commodity. Yeah, but 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 the the issue with that uh, with that analysis stems from an overly simplistic fact. Because if you're driving towards Autarky, well, let's reduce the question to purely food, because that's that's the popular one. Even though that's apparent, apparently somehow in the year 2020, we've forgotten how food preservatives work. Because the main issue with food on the planet is not lack of production, it's just waste. Um, but in any case, let's reduce, let's reduce the, the question just to food. The uh, food cultivation uh, typically requires tilt soil, unless, I don't know, you've just planted forests upon forests of apple trees and other fruit-bearing trees. Yeah, that in of itself... Cucumbers in pods. Yeah. The, the issue is that, ultimately, this is not environmentally neutral in of itself. Indeed, in fact, agriculture is not, uh, is not, uh, how am I going to put this, is not uh, environmentally neutral. It is, indeed, fact, in fact, uh, agriculture consumes shit tons of water, which is why, like, southern Spain and, I think, Texas run into severe water problems it's not it's not just southern spain and texas it's quite a it's quite a few places well yes agriculture in general consumes tremendous amounts of water and in fact drains water from the surrounding ecosystem dams although often considered part of green energy also and who and where and where most of the time local water for farming is stored uh, also tremendous environmental impact so a lot of so a lot so to me because I, I was genuinely not familiar with this environmental argument for odyssey because it just seems so absurd from the outset is that it is quite absurd yeah no i i i would not claim that you know it is it is reasonable yeah because uh, because come on now it is the best one i mean i i guess it 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 is <laughs> It is more grounded than most other arguments for Aotaki I've heard. Because, like, okay, 
Now, you made the environmental argument. That's not, let's, let's go to the, to the ever-traditional one. The hunger is bad, and a country should produce sufficient food to feed its people. Now, this seems fairly neutral, and indeed fact, neither me or bronze are against any country, any country investing more in the, in the agricultural set, uh, sector, because God knows they can use it from time to time. The ultimate issue is that when trying to, to, to achieve food self-sufficiency, you enter into two very clear issues. Uh, you enter into the self-evident uh, economic one, EI, the food you're producing costs more than the food that is cheaply manufactured and available on the market at the same time. Uh, again, the traditional, the traditional response to this, because Odyssey, and this is what uh, and this is what autarchists forget. Autarchists, sorry, I'm, I use I use a C because autarchy in, por in Portuguese means something completely different. Um, so bear with me on that one. I'll be alternating. But autarchists often forget that autarchy is an economic system within of itself, and therefore must make money. And oftentimes, autarchy makes money by constricting access to alternatives, essentially. And not only does this traditionally result in lower quality products, it also more often than not results in very expensive products. And in the, in the food market, in the food situation, this can be quite self-defeating if you implemented a, a food autarchy to combat hunger. More to the point, and as we've said in the past, very rarely is the issue with food about food production per se. Again, the issue with hunger in the planet is not lack of food production. It hasn't been since what? Nitrates were first used as fertilizer? Well, maybe a bit after I th that. I, th I think it's, it's sooner than, than that, if you're looking at a global scale, that there have been individual cases of, of hunger. No, fair enough. Still, it's no lo the, the production is no longer the issue. It's waste. The amount of food that doesn't get sold, the amount of food that doesn't get that doesn't get stored properly. There's just a tremendous amount of waste. Indeed, fact, isn't it, uh, wasn't it like two-thirds of all food produced goes to waste? It's not or quite two-thirds, but it is, it, it is one-third. Oh, one-third, okay. That, that's still, uh, I mean, that's still significant, but... Of, yeah. But it's, it's less than like two, uh, two-thirds, because two-thirds, uh, even in my mind, was a bit too horrifying. Um, but one but third still is one. still not not horrifying. Yeah, that is true. So yeah, a lot of the issues with these considerations can be solved based upon like just diminishing waste within one's country, which is something that if autarchists autarchists truly cared uh, about feeding uh, about feeding the hungry, that is, rather than pushing whatever insane agenda they secretly want because that's often the truth with autarchists, they would adv advocate for anti-waste policies or, you know, rationing if they were that into abolishing, uh, abolishing both food. If they food were that based. <laughs> oh, God, we're going to eventually, well, I guess. I one, guess day, the one day we'll do the rationing episode. They'll, they'll, be, they'll, be, they'll be a series. Wow. I mean... Never mind that feudal that the feudal that the one feudalism feudalism episode broke us in more ways than one. 
Rational, rationing is easier than feudalism. That is true. That is true. Still, the we can dream. The big the big thing with anarchists is often that they have a very simplistic view of a the global economy, b a very paranoid view of feud in a very surrealistic that's the word of, about feud insecurity and uh, about hunger and feud insecurity and b. No, I mean, see, they don't seem to realize that food insecurity is a thing, and that's an actual real issue that impacts the wealthy nations of the West, which is a lack of access to food due to economic reasons. Now, this does not necessarily mean starvation, per se, but it does mean incredibly monotonous dieted, diets or one-meal-a-day type dynamics, which yeah, are... Or just, you know, sporadic eating, you know, like, you know, like unstable access to food you know or even even if you know also of course you have you know this, cause this is something that i've you know I've, I've 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 gone into quite a bit is like for example uh, a thing that doesn't you know appear as starvation but is in fact a very serious issue in a, in a lot of developed nations is food deserts that is areas often in inner cities often in economically disadvantaged communities already in which it's simply not feasible to buy fresh food. That's that. That's to say that the only food options available are, you know, processed foods or other unhealthy foods. You know, which are McDonald's. often, you know, yeah, you know, which often, although it markets itself as cheap, is 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 anything but. Yeah, it's a was isn't the correct term for that like a social trap. Or something along those lines where people could just basically be trapped in like a dynamic that continuously pushes them down even though they have no other choice yeah and and a food desert is an example of a of a, of a social trap there is also often the, the the not often considered psychological aspects which is that you know being food insecure you know, especially as a child, has massive psychological impact. You know, throughout your entire life. Mm-hmm. So it's that's a very serious problem, and I, I feel, you know, got to bring attention. Something to it. that, something we should be talking about. Uh, something well, more important people should be talking about, and uh, something that autists who 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 actually might actually care about hunger and starvation should consider before they start defending out, I see. So, and well, Boris uh, should be well aware of this. Before he starts, he stops not giving the kids lunch. Yeah. That's as topical as you'll get us, listeners. That's as topical yeah, as you'll get us. something that happened four months ago. We're hip. We're hip with the four-month-year-old kids. Yeah. So, sporadically hip, but usually we're, we're hip to the 700 years ago kids. Um, yeah, the type of kids that doesn't that isn't aware of anything that happened 20 years ago to now. To now. So, to continue uh, to continue with this uh, with this somewhat scatterbrained approach, I think this about covers the uh, autarchists, unless uh, oh. I forgot. 
there is a good example of this. Now, especially in our neck of the woods, the uh, monarchist neck of the woods, even though it's closer, to, it's closer to, say, the monarchist dark forest that goes all the way from Germany to the Hessinian wood trout uh, reaching uh, um, Russian thundrum woods, because, uh, yeah, it gets deep. There often is brought an example of Germany during World War I and the British blockade and how somehow the people who know about that, because that's often a topic that's not often talked about, and the starvation that happened in Germany, they say about how Germany should have been more autarkical and how that would have given them enough food to wait out the war better. Here's the issue with this. Somehow these people know that that happened and that there was a food shortage, but they fail to know that the issue with, with Germany in World War I during the blockade was, again, predictably, not exactly food production, but indeed fact, rationing. Rationing. You've got you to nail it if you're doing a modern war. Mm -hmm. to, to, let me put it like this. People have heard talk about the British World War One and Two rationing efforts, and rationing efforts of many uh, of many countries that have been in either world wars. No one has exactly heard about the German rationing effort in World War Two because it happened too little, too late, and in World War One because it was a complete fucking train wreck throughout. That said, I will say to the to the to the to the not quite defense of the Germans. I can't think of, of, of like a, a really good rationing scheme during the First World War. True, like but they, like like they they were pretty they were all pretty bad. I understand that they were all tr pretty bad, but there there is a there is a distinction between the rationing scheme not being good enough and it being completely dysfunctional to the point of not actually working. Like, the ra the German rationing scheme, uh, on admittedly the few literature I've been able to, to get on it over the years, had serious issues of corruption within it. Like, the black like a massive black market sprung up almost immediately. And not only for, like, tr secondary trivialities, like sugar and uh, wine and other things, like... The, the these prestige goods that was that was the case on the World War Two British rationing scheme. We're talking black markets for grain, price fixing not price fixing, price dodging, you name it. The rationing scheme was dysfunctional from the outset. Book flogging, which is where mm -hmm. you, you sell your whole rationing book to someone else. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> which is you know, preventing that is rationing scheme one oh one. But they, they yeah. didn't get that far. No. Again, the system was horrifically dysfunctional, and that is what contributed to the very... Well, not so much... I mean, the defeat of Germany in World War One is a bit of a complicated matter, but let's just say that that, that that failure of the rationing scheme was what contributed to the starvation that Germany was experiencing. Which is also kind of absurd when you consider that it, was, that it shared a land border with Austria... Hungary, which was essentially a massive agricultural producer. So, like, what one would expect that even if they could not avoid some starvation, could, they could have avoided how bad it got via, via imports, but they didn't. Yeah. No, I mean, it got, it got very bad for the Germans, yeah. 
got so bad that that was the main reason they invaded Ukraine to get access to the Ukrainian grain fields. Yeah, it's the breadbasket of Europe. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that did not pay out. Well, sadly or thankfully, depending upon your, your ideological, ethnic, and national inclination. Well, sadly for the Germans, if anything. Yeah, I suppose. I don't mean that like, the German nation is some sort of spiritual entity throughout time. I just mean like the Germans then and there, because, you know. Also, there exists no thing as a spiritual concept of a nation throughout time. No, ob no, obviously not. That's why I wasn't referring to it. Yeah, fair enough. Just to make that clear, the, in case yeah. you were wondering, dear listener, this podcast follows a hard anti-nationalist line. Do not question it. Yeah, it's unquestionable. Now, uh, with the with a good example of that, uh, uh, of I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of other examples where protectionism slash altacy uh, screwed over the country. And, Soviet and the, Union, 1920s. Oh uh, well, but that was war communism, like that was not war uh, communism. Uh, like late 1920s with the 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 the, the, the Ukraine thing. Oh. Yeah, that, that that counts. That I mean, I guess that's yeah, well, easy well, to it explain. Was, it, wasn't, it was sort of protection. I it, it was it, that's a special case. Cause, yeah. Because you, you could you could argue ab about the intentionality of, of of some actions in the in the Ukraine in the late nineteen twenties. You definitely could. Just 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 to be absolutely sure, we are talking indeed fact about the Holodomor, right? Uh, the well, if you broadly define the Holodomor, yes, but it's 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 like the Holodomor round one. Okay, gotcha. Because because you have the 1931 famine and the 1927 famine, but there were also smaller yeah. famines. It, you know, if we start going into that, the the episode will be huge and vast, and also it's it gets very weird and complicated mm -hmm. and dark with that that chapter of history. Yeah. Uh, another uh, another thing, and the, and I reminded of a much easier example to explain, uh, where Altasi screwed the country over tremendously. Uh, uh, Qing Dynasty China. Because they produced everything they needed, silks, porcelains, woods, metals, irons, coal, you name it, the Qing had no use for most Western uh, imports, except one. Opium. Needless to say that this kind of protectionist dy uh, dynamic not only was leading to some very important issues with the Japanese bureaucracy leading with the exterior EI, making them incredibly corrupt because then they could, because then they had an incentive to be, but also basically starting the opium epidemic that would grip China for the next 60, 70, 90 years? Hundred and sixty? No. Um. I mean, the pe the pe depends on when you start on when you start counting where they got where they got uh, when they started getting the opium in truly massive quantities, and especially when the opium production within China started also skyrocketing. But uh, yeah. yeah, but but if we I mean if we count 
autarky leads to, to, to conflict, then I think you can go, you can, then there's a lot of examples. But that's, you know, yeah. some some would dispute whether that's a, 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 a part of the autarky or part of the the, the, the foreign invasion to, to maintain the, the opium importation. That is true. But yeah. still, we, and, and uh, okay, and let's not go with the, let's not go with, um, with the opium example, let's go with the, I guess it wasn't a Chinese economic crash, but it uh, but the Chinese economy did get a violent check once uh, once Spanish gold uh, dried up because until that uh, not Spanish gold Spanish silver I think uh, because during the then. yeah because that was another thing that the West had in tremendous amounts and China basically was uh, was ba essentially was trying to. Wait, didn't the more I think about this, wasn't isn't this literally an an example of of an economy suffering in in, in a, an inflationary crisis under a under a non-fiat currency? Because that's what happened to China. Well, in Spain as well, when we're talking about silver. Because like the issue is that they okay the economy is growing backed on Spanish silver, so we're backing up more more on more on Spanish silver. Even though this is actually ca causing kind of a, a bit of a harsh trade imbalance. Uh, yeah, because the the because you know silver doesn't necessarily lead to deflation; it just leads to the tying of the rate, not to any human decision you can make for the best of the country, but the speed of mining, mm -hmm. whatever it and may be. And when the Spanish gold started drying up, uh, Spanish gold, Spanish silver started drying up, the Chinese economy, for lack of a better term, had a little heart attack. Which, because this is China, the scale of that little heart attack means it was absolutely fucking devastating. Oh yeah, it was huge. Uh, there yeah. was also a, ver a smaller version of this earlier with the Japanese and their silver. Because the Japanese had silver uh, that they were selling to the Chinese but then it dried up. Yeah. So... Which is why uh, they yeah. were so keen on the Spanish silver, because that's where they had gotten their silver from previously. Yeah. But again, because they were only importing silver uh, at quite at quite an unfair price, but due to their uh, uh, autarkic and protectionist... I mean, again, autark aut autarky, although not necessarily tied to protectionism, are... are I can I can think of rare periods in history where autarky and protectionism were just not connected, uh, at least in spirit, if not necessarily in practice and policy. The, I mean, definitely, they're motivated by the same principle. Yeah. The Albania, nineteen so yeah, sixties, maybe. That also counts, yes. Because they're not; they weren't as such like protectionist but they did become autarkical but that wasn't deliberate now that's that is true again while while we are here overly uh, uh, harshly dunking on autarkics the historical examples we are using are actually intensely complicated and the considerations do go a but a bit beyond about disproving autarky in of itself but yeah, so really I think, you know, all, but the, pro the problem is is that when you give examples, you want to give dramatic examples. But obviously dramatic examples are more complicated. Like I think 
you know, if we were to like have like a, a you know over a long period of time look at the effect of autarky on relatively stable economies, you know, we could see that it has a moderate detrimental effect or whatever it may be. But that's not as interesting in, in, in the podcast format as saying, oh, the Chinese were autarkical with their, the, the silver thing, and so the, the, the opium came in, or oh, the Sultanate of Bijapur was, you know, all they wanted to, to buy was red cloth, I think, and so they lost Goa. Wait, they gave us Goa. Uh, well, I, 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 I'm not sure they would. They ended up giving Goa, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that the the Sultan of Bijapur was like one hundo chuffed about it. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, is is what I mean. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that there were that there wasn't a, a, a seizure of Goa in that way. That's not what I meant. Yeah. Uh, or am I mistaken go with Macau? Either case, one of the two was given to us because we made real good cannons back then. Yeah, well, that, that's Macau. Uh, wow, I'm an idiot about my own country's history. Yeah, no, I mean, Goa was, um, was in fact taken by the sword. Oh, well. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so, no, well, it makes so, sense because it, because it was because it was taken by the oh god, I can't believe I forgot his name, the the first uh, the first uh, viceroy of India, who also who also went beast mode on the Indian Ocean and like also got Hormuz and I think uh, Muscat as well. Afonso de Albuquerque. That's the dude. God, why am That's I? The why one. am I? That's the one who who died in a very strange and controversial. Way in Africa. Yeah, his death isn't really talked about here much, but apparently over there in South Africa, it's one of those um, nation-defining moments, which is. I'm not sure it's quite a, like. It's 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 the, it's a nation-defining moment in in a you know, in some circles. Uh, you know, we've we've referenced it, so you know, I think we should tell the story. Sure. I mean, this is still going to be an hour-long episode, and we do, and this will yeah, segue you know, they, nicely we're, into colonialism. We're, we're vibing on a theme, yeah. So what happened was that um, Afonso the Albuquerque, you know, there you go. That one's for you, Mikosk. Um On his way back to Portugal, uh, he stopped. Uh, I, I think they they stopped to gather water on the shores of South Africa, incidentally very near where Cape Town is today. And, uh, you know, of course they would, you know, while being let off the ship, you know, being on dry land, yeah, I'm sure they, you know, they wanted to stretch their legs. And so, you know, a couple of Portuguese soldiers who were on board, they, you know, they ventured out into the wider area and they, they, they met the, the Khoi Khoi. And you know, and they started stealing cattle from the koi koi. And uh, yeah, and obviously the koi koi retaliated, and uh, they gathered their forces, and the Portuguese who were trapped upon the beach because they were very much caught unawares, suffered a very uh, suffered a defeat to the koi kois in which Alfonso ended up dying.
But this is an event that has garnered a lot of sp speculation. And as into what happened. Because it, it, it seems to many to be a rather strange incident. That the, the, the very same Afonso who had, you know, beaten forces many times his size at Malacca and um, Hormuz. I think he didn't win at Aden. But yeah, you know, that he would be uh, you know, beaten by such a relatively, let's put it, simple foe. I mean, being simple doesn't mean much if they're well trained and well adapted. But yeah, no, I mean, I mean, clearly they they were a very very you know, well disciplined force. But you know, the manner in which he became caught upon the beach is to many. I'm not. I I think I actually think that you know, I could see it happening. You know, that oh they just stole some cows and then uh, a much bigger retaliation than they expected, you know, happened. But some say that, in fact, some go as far to say that the, the attack of the Koi Koi was pre-planned, which I that I, I think is ridiculous. Others say uh, that, you know, and this is more reasonable, that Afonso, who was unpopular with some of his cr uh, some of his crew, which he was because he he denied them some pillage back in India, and and then he punished them, and this was seen as bad form, at least by them, and also by many of, of the influential families that they came from, that they orchestrated it such that the ship, the Portuguese ships, could not rescue them from the beach in time, and so they were left to their fate on the beach. And then this has turned into weird conversa uh, things about how the Genghis Khan of the sea, Afonso, was avenged by the Koi, you know, for the, you know, because he he did so much plundering, and then you know, and then you know, this was the the beginning of South Africa as a nation, because you got you got to do some nation building, and then and I can't remember his name, but there was an art historian who wrote a novel, but then later claimed that the novel is very much based on history, that says that that you know. That in fact, this was a massive conspiracy invo involving King Manuel and the Pope and the Jesuits and everyone in, in the Portuguese nobility. You know. Of course. of course, not convoluted at all. No, sir. No, no. That's clearly how reality works, is that the Jesuits and the, and, and the King of Portugal and the Pope all gather together in one room and coordinate a, a PSYOP false flag attack by the Khoi Khoi. Don't you doubt the powers of the Jesuits? That's right. Don't you? We 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 know the we know their oath. We know what they can do. But now on to the last leg of this episode: the nostalgism for colonialism. And this is a doozy. It is tragically common in our neck of the frozen tundra, that is internet monarchism, but also sadly common in both our countries. No matter the ideological spectrum, well, I, I suppose now that it is somewhat in affected by the ideological spectrum, but one would be surprised on how, on how wide colonial 
apologia slash nostalgism is. It goes wide. It's a shockingly wide. So, the main issue with colonial nostalgia, I will spare. I'll spare most uh, the listener. The 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 obvious of oh we went there and killed people because we went there and killed people but you have this nostalgism that africa and india to a lesser degree latin america were better when they were under european rule now let's ignore the self-evident uh, racialist uh, racist racialist and racist uh, undertones that this has because i would oh, hope this I is mean, we shouldn't but let's but, uh, i mean we i mean i said it in such a way that let's not let's not engage into a long-term discussion about it i hope that the listener knows this much because jesus christ and like, oh god the, the, the next q and a q a will either be nothing at all or will be something in either case, the big, uh, the big logic here is that there exists this belief that under col uh, uh, European colonial authority, things were better. There was peace, there was stability, there were trains, there were streets, there was public lighting, etc., etc., etc. Now, we must first state two things. First, not to say that the Europeans did not build railways did not build public lighting and did not build streets and houses they only did this where it was convenient for them and primarily for europeans not the natives in africa where uh, where the only cities that had any amount of electrical power were the headquarters of, of massive uh, corporations that carried out sometimes using virtual slave labor uh, and brutal human exploitation uh, second, uh, the railways were again primarily for European colonial interests and often economically useless uh, uh, throughout, being mainly for, for ferrying around troops rather than connecting to anything useful. And uh, three, this was rarely the case for the entire col uh, for the entire. I guess I can use the term country because they would become countries most of the time. So. Uh, not that this was the case in the entirety of the colonized country. This was often, this was often done at the expense of the of everywhere else that wasn't like the big port city or the big city, that, where the uh, where the colonizers made their abode, for lack of a better term. Another thing, and this is, I think, very important. When we think of colonialism, we do inexplicably think of snazzy uniforms essentially much the same way people think that the napoleonic wars were somehow not brutal because everyone had a had a da had a rat a dapper uniform the same does even more inexplicably apply to the entire experience of colonialism especially the new imperialism phase from the scramble of africa to its bitter end yeah, where yeah I, I, th I think uh the second lap and cringe episode is is relevant here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But essentially, people exclusively in the West, and this includes you Americans as well, uh, though 
less because you often are. I mean, no, fuck it. No, I've seen colon. I've seen Americans who are utterly apologetic of col- of European colonialism. So fuck. You take oh, yeah. uh, you no. guys. No, we're, we're you not, guys we're take not, we're this one. Now, uh, people forget the uh, how how Europeans uh, maintained power in their colonies, and now the the. Some would say, oh, but it was divide and conquer into spitting them against each other. It wasn't that bad. Well, one wonders since when encouraging... One wonders since when encouraging ethnic and racial and cultural strife is not that mad, but okay. But but more to the point, that's that's at best one-fifth of what made the Europeans keep power for as long as they did. The core reason of why Europeans uh, kept power was not due to our development, uh, not due to our racial superiority, and yes, I have heard people tell me that to my face in the year 2020 of our Lord. Thankfully, in 2021, it has yet to happen. Uh, Technological superiority, although that played the part, it turns out the gap wasn't as big, because, I mean, come on now, illegal arms trade was a thing even back then. It was on one thing, so the other four-fifths, and that is uh, fear and terror. Because we often forget, but we've all heard of the pacification expeditions that were often declared. Uh, we don't, uh, what people don't know is how uh, the European troops in their snazzy uniforms marched up to tons of villages, potentially every single one in their, in, in their route, and literally shot up the place, man, woman, and children, too. We are forgetting that uh, in uh, the, how, brutally repressed, how brutally repressed any amount of, in, any serious amount of Indian descent was throughout both the company period and, and the Raj. And in Africa, the amount of for lack of a better term, impromptu genocides that were conducted uh, against sometimes even the slightest amount of, of dissent. This, the, the, the true picture of the European uh, colonizer was not of a, of, of, a, of a genteel guy in a factory somewhere while, uh, while the Africans uh, worked away tirelessly seemingly kept in a position of submission because apparently they hadn't learned what freedom was yet, Uh, but rather due to the fact that said Africans were, and especially the ruling elites of said Africans, this applies also to Indians as well in this particular context, knew very well what we would do to them should they try something something as apparently unreasonable as uh, seeking better conditions or freedom. And uh, that was shoot up the place, uh, chemically or uh, sterilize them was also often it was also a tactic that was used rather laxadaisically, and uh, a number of things. So, really, what I want uh, you, dear listener, when you think of European colonialism, think of a barbarian, think of a barbarian crushing the child, uh, crushing the skull of a young child. The race does not matter. Uh, and, uh, that, and the face of that barbarian is whatever face you think the West has, because that's what it was. We were literally, str- we were literally conducting any uh, actions that can only be described as sadistic against other peoples for, we claim, benefit, but truth be told, economic benefit, there was none. Out of the top there, of my head, was, I... There wasn't that much benefit, not for most people. 
I mean, even even for the 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 the. I mean, the interests that did make some money, the select few co companies and corporations, because God knows even colonial corporations and chartered companies didn't turn that much of a profit. I mean, I guess if you were in the, in the, in the diamond mining business, you could make a tidy sum, but still, the, the, I mean, the human cost. How often, people forget how often the Dutch East India Company went bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And the British East India Company and the various Portuguese colonial companies. Yeah, it's it's it's. I think it might be in the double digits for each of them. Mhm. Mm no, and the. But no, like the big the the big issue here is that I know of one colony in the entire history of colonialism. I, to be to to, to be to be tragically honest to you, finding good information on the colonialism period is surprisingly difficult, both in Portuguese and in English. I wonder why. Um, but uh, uh, of my admittedly frustrated research into the topic, I have only found mention of a single colony in the entire existence of colonialism. Well, again, let me correct that. In the entire existence of uh, of new imperialism, so scramble for Africa till the bitter end. Being uh, economically self-sufficient, and you uh, and place your bets. Uh, let's wait uh, twenty seconds. Okay, I can't wait. If you if your answer was German Cameroon, then congratulations, you are correct. At least you I think it was German. Except you, you get a you get a, you get a point. Yeah. Uh, well, it was either German Cameroon or the. Uh, it was either German Cameroon or their other colony, whose name I forget, in West Africa. I, I remember it was like the, it was amongst the smallest colonies they had, and that and that was the one where they managed to to reach the vaunted levels of economic self sufficiency. And before you say German efficiency, no, it had to do. With very little with German efficiency in colonial in the colonial aspects. Turns out Togo German efficiency was, is a spook. German efficiency is the is the biggest spook of all time. Yeah, I've seen how the Nazis run their regime. There was a lot of stuff there. Efficiency and lack of corruption was not one. Um, Any, anyway, still. I think I think I think we've made points about you know all three the, the nature of nostalgism itself but also you know slaying the sacred cows of the nostalgists i'm gonna hype it up a bit um but yeah it's just you know before before we leave off for, for today i'd like to say that next episode is indeed the q a the third one yay yay and you know just because apparently we, we we've not done the best job of making this clear how the but now we're telling you in advance is that the Q and A will uh, is on Discord. So if you want to ask the questions, then you then you need to join the Discord, which is in the doobly doo, as they say. Yeah. Now don't worry, mm -hmm. social media influencers. And, yeah. Uh, we don't speak influences. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So I mean, I wish I could tell you a date, but. No. It's complicated. We, we, we will find a way to communicate. It will be on the Discord. 
is is that's 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 the best advice I can give you. Yeah, but we'll find It'll, a way to we'll find a way to to put it on YouTube at least. Maybe. Somehow. We'll try. We can hope. In any case, this has been Monarchism Unfiltered. I've been one of your hosts, Makosk. And I've been the other host, Bronze. And uh, remember to smash like and hit the, the, the subscribe button or whatever platform it is that you're listening on. Oh yeah, because I forgot we do have this on, many, on multiple platforms. In any you know, case... On all the platforms, you know, wherever, wherever it is that you view fine podcasts. That is true. In any case, goodbye. Yeah, and good night.